Well, turn with me to John chapter 14. As we're continuing our studies in the Upper Room Discourse. Christ's last teaching to his disciples before he was crucified. A number of years ago, Joan Baez made popular a song, Love is Just a Four-Letter Word. I'm sure that many of you remember it. And in the song, she said that, that we throw around the word love, and often it's just a curse word, because we just abuse it. We don't mean anything by it. For many, the word love is the word a guy says to a girl in the back seat of the car when he really means my adrenaline's running and my hormones are up. And that's all that I love you means. Well, we need to really understand what love is if we're going to use it, even in our relationship with God. Because if we don't understand what true love is, then, then we are liable to fall into using the word love as just another curse word, even in our relationship with God. It's because of this that in this part of the chapter we're going to be studying tonight, verses 15 to 31, Jesus tells his disciples what the true nature of love is. We find that in verse 15. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. True love is not just the emotion of the moment. Rather, it's the commitment of the will over an extended period of time. It's not just the emotional outburst when we say, Oh God, I love you. And then we turn around and spit in his face. He says, If you love me, you will do the things that I have commanded. You won't say the words and then not do all the things I've told you. Nor will you say those words and then do a bunch of things I've told you not to do. But rather, your love will be shown by your actions. Then the next few verses, uh, verses 15 to 20, he tells us of some foundational truths that we need to know to undergird our obedience to him. He tells us, first of all, that we're not alone in the task of obeying him because he has given us his spirit to enable us to be our helper. He says in 16 and 17, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. Now why does he say, I'll give you another helper? Who was the first helper that he gave them? He was their helper as he was with them. But he's going away. So he says, I'm going to give you another helper, the Holy Spirit. One who will be with you forever. Not just as I've been with you for three years, limited in time, the mere three years limited in space, just to one body, but I'll be with you always, or he'll be, this new helper will be with you always. The word helper, or as, as the uh, old versions say, comforter, which comes from the, the Latin word which means to help, that's why the word comforter is there, is one who is called alongside to strengthen us and do, to help us. And as a marginal reading, as a marginal note in many of our Bibles says, it also means intercessor, one who prays for us, as Paul says in Romans 8, the Spirit intercedes for us in our weakness, so that we may be able to do that which he calls us to do. And this is characteristic of Christ. 
He doesn't simply lay on us a bunch of rules. Rather, He also gives us His Spirit so that we can fulfill all that He calls us to. He says, This Spirit is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. In other words, this Helper is going to be invisible. People won't see it. They won't believe it. The world won't. They won't believe He's there. They've not... They cannot receive Him because they don't behold Him or know Him. They don't perceive, they don't understand what the Holy Spirit is all about. But you're familiar with this Spirit, He says, because He abides with you now and there will come a time when He will be in you. So here's the first foundational truth that we need to undergird our obedience. He gives us a Spirit to help us. The second truth is found in verses 18 to 20. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me. Because I live, you shall live also. In that day, you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What does he mean when he says, after a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me? What is that little while? And when when would the disciples behold him in a little while? You have to talk up loud because I can't hear whispers from up here. When when was the little while? When would, Yeah, after the crucifixion. He's going to come to them again in his resurrected body and show them that he was real. And notice that he says in these verses that that's the basis of their knowing and being assured that the things he's teaching are true. He says... In that day you shall know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So the second foundational truth that we need to undergird our obedience is an assurance that this whole Christian thing is reality. We're not just off in some kind of fantasy world. We're not like Don Quixote. I'm sure you all know a little bit about Don Quixote. It's a story of a a Spanish... uh, man in the Middle Ages who got in illusions of grandeur and thought he was a knight. His life was a great commitment. He was trying to be obedient to his vision as to what he was supposed to do. But he'd go around uh, having fights with windmills and other things like that. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ which assures us that our Christian life is not just another Don Quixote adventure. We're not just committing ourselves to part of a fantasy world but rather what we're committing ourselves to and what we're obeying is grounded in reality. All kinds of religions and philosophies of life can offer you some kind of experience. What they can't offer you is some kind of verification in history that they're really true. I remember reading a story about the Maharaji in a newspaper several years ago. If you all remember, he was a a big head. He's still around, but was a big head about oh, five or six years ago, uh, was an, is an Indian and he was 16 years old then and claiming himself to be the Lord of the universe. According to this newspaper article, those who came to him would get a real experience. As I describe it to you, it'll probably seem laughable to you, as it did to me, but according to this article, what he would offer them was divine light, divine music, and divine nectar. And people will come to him, they get a real experience of these things. He would 
have one of his uh, trained leaders sit there with you after you paid your initiation fee. I think they had something like that. And then they would take their thumbs, have you close your eyes and press up against your eyes with their thumbs. And pretty soon you'd open your eyes and they'd say, divine light, do you see it? See little stars floating all around. <laughs> and then they'd take their thumbs, very magical thumbs, and stick them in your ears and press against your eardrums till pretty soon they'd say, do you hear the divine music? Kind of a thumping noise. <laughs> and then they would, would uh, offer you the divine nectar. And I hope that you're not offended by this, but um, they would say, tilt your head back and curl your tongue back like that. And then they'd massage right in here in your sinus cavities. And pretty soon the divine nectar would start flowing. <laughs> now, I'm sure that there was more to the whole religious experience than this. They had their meditation, which went along with it. But according to this newspaper account, this was, this was part of the whole, the basic thing that they were offering. And it was a real experience. You can't deny it. You can experience all those things yourself. The seeing stars and hearing thumping and the other stuff. <laughs> but the mere experience is not enough to help you know that that religious teaching is really rooted in reality. And that's why it's important for us as Christians to base our witness as well as well as our own personal assurance in more than simply our experience. You read in the first part of the book of Acts and Peter says, we know that this Jesus whom you crucified is Lord in Christ. He doesn't say because our lives have been changed and we feel wonderful inside. He says rather because we saw him rise from the dead. We're witnesses of that. We'll tell you about it. Paul says in Acts 17, God has offered proof to all men that the gospel is true through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have as an assurance that as we obey the gospel, we are not just entering into another fantasy world. We're getting more than divine light. We're doing more than going on a Don Quixote adventure. But we are committing ourselves to that which is really real and true. And he says, on the basis of the fact that I live, notice in verse 19, he says, because I live, you shall live also. So we can have an assurance that we are going to live, both physically in the day of resurrection and spiritually right now. We can have an assurance of that because of the resurrection. Because our faith is rooted in historical fact, not merely in experience which can lead you astray. So these are the truths in these verses, 16 to 20, that provide the foundation for our obedience. We have the Holy Spirit to help us. We have an assurance that we are basing our lives in reality. Yet I'm sure that you will agree with me that sometimes we still lack motivation to obey. Sometimes we don't want to have to pay the price to keep his commandments, even though we feel that we do love him. Disciples, I'm sure, are feeling that now. What would it mean? Answer me for a minute. What would it mean for them to obey Christ at this time? Keep his commandments. What was happening in his life? Death. And what might happen to them? Yeah. 
He was a religious leader who was singled out as a as a rabble rouser and troublemaker by the religious establishment, and they were going to put him to death. And therefore, for him to say, okay, I'm an outlaw, but you follow me and my whole pattern of life and my commandments, it was not just a comfortable Sunday thing for them. But to obey him meant that their lives might be on the line. So they had to have some motivation to want to obey him. The same, it's the same way with us. Now, our lives might not be in the line the same way. They, they aren't with any of us, I don't think. But there's still a price to pay. Because we have to put our lives in the line in a different sense, in the sense they had to as well, but a sense different from that. Because we, to obey him, have to uh, say death to our flesh. We can't obey him and cling on to all of our favorite sins. You may be one who likes to be sarcastic and cynical. You can't obey Christ and always be cutting everybody and everything down. Or you may be impatient at times. And that's just a habit with you. When things don't go your way, when they don't go fast enough for you, you get uptight and you get irritable with people. And that's just your pattern of life. And you don't want to have to give it up. To obey Him would mean for you that You'd have to rearrange your whole life and how you approach life, and that's too difficult, maybe. Or maybe you like to get mad at people. Maybe you don't like to, but you think you have a right to. When people cross you, they don't do things like they ought to do. They don't give you what you think you deserve. You get mad at them. Well, you can't obey Christ and follow his commandments and hang on to that type of sin and think you have a right to do it. So... To obey him, to follow his commandments, is going to mean that we have to pay a price. So seeing that, we have to ask ourselves, is it worth it? Is it worth it to pay this kind of price? And in the next few verses, Jesus tells us, yes, it is worth it. Because he tells us in these verses, verses 21 to uh, 24, what will be the result of obeying him? And let me read the verses to you and you tell me what will be the result of obeying him. What is it that would motivate us to obedience? He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, He will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So what does he say will be the result of our obeying him? He says two things. Christ will disclose himself to us, and God will love us. But I thought that God loved us even without our obeying. Is he saying here that God's love is conditional and only if we obey is he going to love us? Don't we, you know, we we sang a song here on Sunday night a couple weeks ago from 1 John. Uh, we love him because he first loved us. This is saying he will love us if we obey him. How do we answer that? It's in terms of the kind of love. It's the self-disclosure which comes with it. It's true in Romans 5.8 we read that God commends his love to us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
So he does love us and he has shown his love in an objective sense apart from our actions, apart from our worth. But we only experience the subjective side of his love, I think this is what he's saying here, as we obey him, as we respond to his objective love with our obedience, with our obeying his commandments. And as we do that, then he will disclose himself to us. He will let us get to know him better. And the Father will love us. We will experience reality in that relationship. Maybe you have an experience, which I think we all do from time to time, that that relationship with Christ just doesn't seem real. It seems to lack the reality that we felt at times. He seems kind of distant. We seem like seems sometimes like we're just kind of playing games, going through the motions. Or I think these verses are implying that if that's the case, it may be the fact that we feel that way, we feel a distance from God because we're hiding something. We're resisting Him at some point. We're not opening ourselves to Him totally to let Him be Lord of our lives. We're trying to not obey in some area we don't really want to have to give up. He says in verse 23 that as, we, as a result of our obedience, uh, we will come to Him and make our abode with Him. We will take up residence in you as you obey, as you open your heart up fully. Uh, Robert Munger has written a little pamphlet on uh, taking off in this idea that many of you probably read, My Heart, Christ's Home. And it's a very excellent discussion of this sort of thing. He says when we become a Christian, it's sort of like opening up our home to Christ. With many of us, we, we open them up and we bring them into the living room. We let them see all of our nice things. Uh, but we kind of close off the rest of the house. We stick all the dust under the rugs and all the mess we throw into the closets and close the door and hope, he, hope the, our visitor doesn't see. But he says for that relationship to develop and for there to become an intimacy where he's more than just a passing visitor who's a stranger, becomes to be a real friend and, and comes to be one with whom you're intimate, for that to happen, you need to open up the whole house. Not hide your financial dealings. Not hide your sexual life. Not hide your thought life and what you do with it. Not hide your attitudes. You need to open up your whole life to let him be Lord. And as you obey, he says, I will disclose myself to you. You will get to know me more. And so the motivation for obedience is that only then do we really have that intimacy of relationship with him. Only then do we feel the reality of his love for us and of his life within us. And that's a very strong motivation. If you felt that reality, you know that the human heart longs for nothing more, nothing greater than that, nothing higher. And if we miss that reality, then we have to fill our lives with a bunch of things that are second best and don't really make it. So this is the motivation he gives us to obey Him, to show our love by walking in obedience. Now, the disciples at this point were probably thinking something like, but Lord, how can we relate to You and continue to walk with You and even think about obeying You when You're leaving us? We're going to be in despair. We're going to be frightened of what might happen to us. How can you just abandon us like this and yet 
tell us to obey. How can we do this? In verses 25 to 31, Jesus answers their fears and their questions. And he says, yes, I am leaving. But I'm leaving behind for you all that you need to live out your obedience. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes to pass, that when it comes to pass you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Probably some of you want to apply that last (laughs) verse right now. We'll do that in a minute. But Christ says here four things that he's leaving them with. The first thing in verse 26, the Holy Spirit. And what does he say here the Holy Spirit will do? What in this verse does he say he will do? Help him remember and teach him. And what is the extent? Who is this promise given to? Yeah, it's the disciples. It's really not all of us. I, I can't remember everything Jesus said, and I think probably most of you can't either. Because the Holy Spirit is not, he didn't promise the Holy Spirit would help all of us remember all things Jesus has ever said. The promise is given to the disciples. He is going to bring to remembrance all my teachings, and he's going to lead you further. He's going to teach you himself, so that you will know what to obey. When I leave, your mind will not be all fogged out and clouded, and we say, yes, I want to obey and follow you, Lord, but... Gosh, I can't remember what I'm supposed to do. And through the disciples then, who are inspired by the Spirit as he speaks here, we have his word so that we too don't have to live in a fog, but we can know what to obey as we read his words in the scripture and the teachings that he uh, he gave through the disciples. The second thing he leaves us with is in verse 27, his peace. He says, it's not as the world gives peace, but I give you my peace. The world's peace is either based upon something which is temporary because we have peace and we experience, you know, our football team wins and all of our bills are paid right now and there's no war going on and uh, the car's uh, functioning and all these things. But all those things are temporary and they, they don't last. And so the peace the world gives through these circumstances can't last. Or the world gives us peace through another means sometimes, through escapism. You have peace when your mind is numbed through spending all of your time drinking or spending all of your time in front of a television so that you don't have to think about your problems or you spend all your time running around in different amusements so that you don't have to face reality. But the world can't give you a peace when you have to face reality and all of its different ramifications, the good and the bad. But Jesus says, my peace I give to you. Now, what was his peace? 
His peace, I think, was the peace of one whose life was totally submitted to the will of God. Because when we're all wrapped up in ourselves, we can't have peace. We worry about what might happen to us. I think that's the problem he's alluding to in verse 28. He said, when I said I was going to go away, you should have rejoiced for me because I'm going to go be with the Father. But instead, you are lacking peace, you disciples, because you're all wrapped up in yourselves. You're not thinking about me and about the Father. The way for you to have peace is to submit yourself totally and without reservation to God's will. Be one who's bent on doing his will. And as you become that kind of person, you're going to have peace. Your life will have a stability because you'll trust that that your life is in the hand of a loving and sovereign Father who knows all and cares for you in all ways. And notice that he says in verse 27, Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. He's implying that we have the option. We can let it be troubled or not. If we're full of anxiety and worry, that's our option. We can do it or we can do without it. To do without it, we have to take his peace. His peace and his way. As we submit ourselves to the fathers, even as he did. So that's the second thing he's saying he's leaving us with here. His peace. The third thing in verse 29, which he's already said in this uh, uproom discourse, and now I've told you before it comes to pass that when it comes to pass you may believe. Another word of assurance. That they would be assured because they knew that things were not out of control. He foretold what would happen before it happened. So that they'd know that they didn't have to run. Uh, his being captured by the Roman soldiers was not just a chance thing that happened. Rather part of a divine plan. And the fourth thing in verses 30 and 31. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. The fourth thing he's leaving them with is an example. He says, I love the Father, therefore I'm obeying his will. He's implying, if you love me, follow my example by obeying my will. Notice that he says, the ruler of the world is coming. Satan is coming in his power. Here, I'm motivating Judas, leading the soldiers to capture him. But he says, he has nothing in me. In other words, he doesn't have any power over me. I'm going to be captured and put to death, but it's not because Satan is powerful. He says, but rather, I'm doing this that the world may know that I love the Father. My submitting to the horrors of the beatings and the crucifixion is not because I've lost control, but because I willingly submit myself to God's will, no matter what the cost. And then when he says at the end, Arise, let us go, it's really a word of determination. It's a word of courage, of one who is willing. He's not trying to hide from it. Put it off. Okay, God, I'll do your will, but let me wait until the last possible moment and I'll kind of run away and hide and see, you know, maybe someday they'll find me. But rather, he says, let's go meet it head on. This is God's will now, and I want to do it. And I want to do it, he said, because I love him. Because I love him, I want to have his will, no matter what the cost for me. So he's told us in this passage, then, that if we really love him, we'll keep his commandments. 
And he's given us what we need to, to form the basis of that obedience. His spirit to help us, to enable us. His resurrection to assure us is rooted in reality, that commitment. Then also he gives us uh, proper motivation. He says the result will be a vital and living relationship with me that will satisfy all of your deepest needs. And he gives us, a, he gives us the inspired apostles so we know what to, what to obey. His peace so we won't be deflected from the course. And his model so we know how to do it. This is his example and his word for us. And let's sing song number 261 in closing. Trust and obey. Look with me at the words before we sing. Because this song really says the same things that the Lord is teaching in this passage. Let's read the, uh, look at the first verse. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds in our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. In other words, when we're living obediently, he discloses himself to us. What a glory he sheds on the, on the way. In verse 4, look, he says, the author says, But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. In other words, when, we're, when we submit totally to God in obedience to him. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey.